If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Romans and chapter 8. Romans and chapter 8. This is part 2 of our Forgotten God series. Uh, that's the title we've given to this series that we're going to be focusing on, uh, the Holy Spirit and His work. We looked at uh, last week the Holy, Holy Spirit as a person in His role as teaching um, and His equality with the Father and the Son in the Trinity. And so we're going to continue that uh, today in Romans Eight, and then so next week will be the final sermon in this series on the Holy Spirit. And then on the 14th, we'll start our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Okay, that'll be on the 14th. So uh, we encourage you to get a scripture journal on Luke. If you don't have one, uh, you can visit the welcome desk. Those are four bucks a pop. Uh, get you one uh, before that series. But for today, we're going to read Romans 8, 1 through 30. Okay, Romans 8, 1 through 30. Uh, it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. <clears throat> Romans 8, start in verse 1. God's Word says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and as children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. It's God's word, and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In the classic book by John Bunyan that you've probably heard me reference before, The Pilgrim's Progress, how many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress, by the way? Okay, not so bad. My daughter's read it 30 times? <laughs> probably. Uh, in that book, The Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, you, you know the premise, right? The reader follows, follows the travels of a man named Christian as he makes his way to a place called the Celestial City. Uh, this being an allegory, Christian is intended to picture, be a picture of every Christian person as they traverse this world full of dangers, toils, and snares as they strive for the next. Well, as Christian sets out on his journey, he's instructed to go to the interpreter's house. And the interpreter is intended to picture the Holy Spirit. Well, the interpreter welcomes Christian in and he takes him by the hand and he shows him uh, many things so that Christian will remember these vivid pictures that the interpreter shows him uh, when he inevitably encounters temptations and struggles on his journey to the celestial city. Well, in one of those scenes, the interpreter takes Christian into a room and it has two children sitting in it. Each they have their own chair. One of the children's name was Passion and the other patience. Well, passion was clearly very discontented. Like you could tell just by looking at him, restless, pacing, squirming, frowning, huffing and puffing. Well, patience, on the other hand, was sitting with his feet straight in front of him, neatly squared up in the middle of the chair, hands folded in his lap in a way all parents wish their children would sit, but likely never have. So Christian inquires to the interpreter, what does this mean? Why is passion so restless? The interpreter said that the boys were told that they had to wait for the best things. The best things were coming to them, but they wouldn't get them until early next year is what they're told. So this upset passion because he was impatient, but patience chose to simply wait contented for the good things. But just then, someone entered the room, walked straight to passion, and poured out a bag of treasure at his feet. He scooped it up and he rejoiced and he laughed and he looked at patience with scorn. But a short time later, all of the treasure was gone, squandered by passion, and he was left with nothing but rags. Naturally, Christian asked the interpreter, what does all this mean? And the interpreter explained that passion represents the men of this world. They must have the good things now. They can't wait till the next world for the good things. But, says the interpreter, as you can see how quickly it all wasted away and how he was left with nothing but rags. Then he added, it is the glory of the next world that will never wear out while the good things of this world will vanish. This picture, like many pictures in Pilgrim's Progress, is pr profound. At once, Bunyan's picture, the only two postures one can have on the earth. Yes? Patience as one who waits on the promises of God or passion as one seeks the ways of the world. 
And Bunyan pictures the Holy Spirit as the one who guides us to see each for what they truly are and to see that we all have a choice to make in this life, yes? We follow the ways of the world and seek to gain as much in our flesh as we can and thus be left with nothing in the end. Or will we lean on the Holy Spirit and follow the ways of Christ, have trouble in this world, but receive an inheritance at the end of which the Holy Spirit is the guarantee? (laughs) Along with (coughs) this text, vividly pictures this this morning. Along with 14 through 16 in John, Romans 8 is one of the most important sections in the New Testament regarding the Holy Spirit. In this one chapter alone, did you notice the Holy Spirit is named no less than 18 times? This, of course, is a chapter rich in theological truth, so I'm going to have to ask you to excuse me in my weakness and frailty today as I won't even touch the hems of this deep chapter. It's so rich that the world-renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said it is a veritable feast of Pauline themes that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. He says, if the church would hoist its sails and catch the wind of Romans 8, there's no telling what might happen. This is a chapter worth memorizing and worthy to be studied at length. For our purposes in this series on the Holy Spirit, we're going to zero in on what Paul tells us about him and what he does in the life of the Christian to aid them in their pilgrimage through the world. So let's have four points this morning, okay? Four points. Number one, the Holy Spirit gives new life. The Holy Spirit gives new life. You'll note that Paul begins the chapter in striking fashion, doesn't he? He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there now for those in Christ Jesus? None. Of course, when we see this word, therefore, any Bible student knows to ask what? What's it there for, right? And it is meant, this therefore is meant to point us back to everything Paul said at this point, up to this point. In other words, packed into this word therefore in verse 1 is everything Paul has said in the first seven chapters, okay? But what does he mean when he says, now there is no condemnation? What he means is that every single person without exception is under condemnation from a holy God. Yes? We are storing up wrath for ourselves. There is no one righteous. No what? Not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All humans are born rebels who live separated from God. But it's not as if we are victims of divine wrath. We are workers of wickedness, choosing sin and self-worship over relationship with our Creator. And thus, we are condemned. We have a sentence that hangs over us that says, guilty. And if we die without reconciling to God, we will stand before his throne, and he will bring down the gavel, and he will say, guilty. Further, says Paul, God has given us his law, and we have not obeyed it. Indeed, we cannot obey it perfectly. But Jesus could and did. And all that wrath we have stored up, he has absorbed in himself on the cross. But here's what we need to see, okay? Without the work of the Holy Spirit, all of that work by Christ was for naught. Why? Because remember, 
the Spirit must come to us and show us the utter depths of our sin. He must reveal to our stubborn hearts that we are at odds with a holy God, that we cannot, through our own deeds, mend the relationship and are under a just sentence of condemnation. The Spirit then shows us the beauty and work and truth of Christ and offers us forgiveness through Him. It is then for us to choose the world and death or Christ and life. If we choose life and we give our allegiance to Christ, it is the Holy Spirit, verse 9, who indwells us and applies Christ's work to our lives. It is the Holy Spirit who takes our bankrupt account and fills it with Christ's righteousness so that we are no longer under the sentence of condemnation. The verdict on the last day, check this out, the verdict on the last day has been declared in the present, and that verdict is innocent because of Christ's work and the Spirit's application of that work to our lives. The law, says Paul, is not what's bad. It's the people, yes, <laughs> who are bad. The law is perfect, the law is good, but men are sinful and cannot obey rightly. And in fact, men are so sinful that they actually turn the law into an occasion to sin. So obedience to the law absolutely cannot save. And anyone who hung out with us during Exodus will remember that the law wasn't trying to do that anyway. But men turned it into a way to try to earn their salvation, but this ironically turned it into a condemner of men. Let's illustrate this by returning to the interpreter's house in the Pilgrim's Progress. You know, at one point, and you really should go read the Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Or at least go find this section about the interpreter's house. At one point, the interpreter, he takes Christian into a parlor, and it's just full of dust, okay? Nobody has ever swept it. Do you have a room like that? Nobody's ever swept it, okay? And someone then comes in, and they begin to sweep it, and the more they sweep, guess what? The more the dust is kicked up, and it nearly chokes poor Christian to death. And then a woman comes in, and she begins to sprinkle water all throughout the room, and then the room was easily swept and clean. Christian, of course, asked the interpreter, the Holy Spirit in this, what does this mean? And the interpreter said, the room is the heart of man before he knows Christ. The dust is his sin and inward corruption. The one who begins to sweep is the law. It, it couldn't cleanse the heart of sin, but arouses it, and the water the woman sprinkled is the gospel, which subdues sin and cleanses the soul through faith. Paul is saying the law kicked up the dust. It revealed the dirt, but it couldn't clean it. Only the cleansing water of the gospel could clean our dirty hearts, and it is the Holy Spirit who applies that work to our hearts. So make sure you get this, friends, okay? Make sure you get this. Without the Holy Spirit's application of the work of Christ in our hearts, there is no salvation. There is none. The Spirit gives the life that the law promised but could never deliver. Now, one might expect that since this has happened, that we could throw out the law. And perhaps the whole Old Testament for good measure, right? Not so fast. What does verse 4 say? It says that the Spirit of life sets us free and we can now obey the law as we ought. Is that not what it says? <laughs> That's exactly what it says. Sinclair Ferguson puts it beautifully when he said, 
We appreciate the clarity of the law only when we gaze fully into Christ's face. But when we do gaze there, we see the face of one who said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, and we want to be like him. This is not bondage, it's freedom. The Christian rejoices, therefore, in the law's depths. He seeks the Spirit's guidance for its application. It is not legalism for Jesus to do everything his Father commanded, nor is it for us. So far from the Spirit tossing the law aside, he actually enables us to obey it in a new way, with new life, in freedom, without depending on it for salvation, but delighting in obeying our Father. Through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this leads us to point number two. Point number two, the Holy Spirit gives us a new mind. The Holy Spirit gives us a new mind. Now, you'll notice that Paul will spend the next section, you had to have seen this when you read it, right? He's juxtaposing two spheres, right? The flesh and the spirit. Does he list a third? Does he? No. There are only the two. Those are the only two. There's no middle ground here. Either you are in the realm of the flesh or you're in the realm of the spirit. Either you are passion or patience. There's, there are only two mindsets possible, the things of the spirit or the things of the flesh. The Holy Spirit intends to give you, do you know this, a new mindset which yields, verse 6, life and peace. And in verse 7, he shows us what the mindset on the flesh is characterized, doesn't he? It is characterized by hostility to God. It is characterized by a failure to submit to God and his will. And it is in constant state of rebellion against his throne. Essentially, Paul is showing us the difference between being converted and unconverted. The mind of the flesh can't please God and it leads to death. The mind of the Spirit can please God, and it leads where? To life. The mind of the Spirit sets your sights on things of Christ. It points you to the direction of life and peace, which is found in Jesus, and fellowship with Him, and in obeying His commands. The Spirit enables us to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, and we thus desire in our hearts the things of God. Is that how you would be characterized, I wonder? Let me just think about, is your disposition set on the things of God? Is like your life posture to give him glory? Now, this is not to say the presence of the flesh does not still reside in us this side of heaven and there isn't a struggle. But that's also not Paul's point in 5 through 8. Paul is saying that those who have the Spirit have a new mind set on the things of the Spirit, which means that what we fundamentally want is what the Spirit wants for us. Paul is in part addressing the desires of those who have the indwelling Spirit. The difference between the mind of the flesh and the mind of the Spirit is that those who have the Spirit actually want to please God. They actually want to please God. They actually want to pursue His will. Well, while those in the flesh, they don't care about God's will. <laughs> they, don't, they remain unconcerned with the things of Christ. And let me ask you, 
what is it that you want? What do you want? In your heart of hearts, what is at the root of all your desires? If the desires of your heart and the contents of your prayers, the root of your affections were all granted in this moment, what would happen? Would God's will be done or would yours? Yeah, an illustration I like to use, you've heard me use this before, uh, comes to mind from the book and movie Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, if it was 20 years ago, I couldn't even mention that from the pulpit, right? There's a scene where Harry finds a room that has a mirror in it, and he looks into the mirror. He stands in front of the mirror, he looks into the mirror, and he, all of a sudden, in the mirror, he sees himself with his parents. And this is the first time he's ever seen his parents in his life, because they were killed when he was a baby. And, and they're surrounding him, and they're smiling with him, and their hands are on their shoulders, looking proud. And so Harry runs and he tells his best friend, Ron, about what he saw. And he brings Ron back to this room and back to the mirror. And he has Ron stand in front of the mirror thinking he'll see his parents too. Instead, you know what Ron sees? Ron sees himself as captain of the sports team, holding the championship cup. And he's standing alone with all of his siblings in the corner, jealous of him because he's better than them. <laughs> Well, Harry doesn't understand what this all means until later his mentor explains the mirror is called Erised. And since, you know, it's a kid's book, so it's not very subtle, that's desire spelled backwards. And so the mirror, what it does is it shows the deepest desire of the person's heart who is looking into it. Right? Harry desired his parents. Ron desired fame. If, I wonder if such a mirror existed, what would be revealed to you? Like, if you looked in that mirror, what, what are the deepest desires of your heart would be revealed there? What is the motivating, let's get to the ba base here. What is the motivating factor for your life? What is at the root of what you want the most? For those with the mind of the flesh, what they would see is what Ron saw, right? Riches. Fame, a name, people jealous and fawning over them, and a good and a comfortable life. But what Paul is saying here is that those who are in Christ are given the indwelling spirit who utterly alters their mindset and puts it on the things of God. Ferguson again says this, and so we allow the fruit the spirit produces in us to become the object of our thinking and aspiring. For what we think about and love will have the determinative influence on our character. Do you believe that? What fills our minds will shape our lives. Do you agree? We become what we think. Can't you testify to that through your experience? <laughs> of course you can. Now this isn't to say, okay, that you'll never sin, never have wrong desires, never be drawn back to the things of the flesh. But it is to say that the Spirit means to change your base desires and motivations and motivating factor of your life from self and things of earth to the will and glory of God. So we should set our minds on the things of God often and be driven by thoughts of Him to actions in all areas of our lives more and more as we grow. 
Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, to whom be glory forever. This should be the single desire of the Christian. All other wishes must be subservient and tributary to this one. The Christian may wish for prosperity in business, but only so far as it may help them promote this. To him be glory forever. He may desire to attain more gifts and more graces, but only be that to him be glory forever. You are not acting as you ought to do when you are moved by any other motive than a single eye on your Lord's glory. And so this is the thing about the life of the Spirit. Okay, you ready? Here's the thing about life in the Spirit and this mindset. It's actually pretty mundane. Do you know that? See, like we said last week, many tend to think of movements of the Spirit in mostly dramatic ways, as if the movements of the Spirit are primarily about tingly feelings when the music hits just right, or feelings of inspiration after the message, or speaking in tongues, or miraculous healings, or ecstatic experiences, and the like. But what we are being drawn and shown to is that the life in the Spirit happens through ordinary means of grace like day-to-day desire to do God's will in your job and in your relationship through reading Scripture and it being implanted in our hearts and thoughts and in our prayers and in our child-rearing as we model faithfulness and so on. Do you guys see? And again, this isn't what we get by our own might. It's given to us as we receive the Spirit, but this does not mean we are bystanders. He gives us a new mind, but we must tap into it and be renewed and transformed more and more. And this life in the Spirit is just that. It's a disposition of life. It affects us in every avenue from our work to play to worship, because as our minds are renewed, as our desires are changed, the way we live ought to follow. Where where we point our desires is precisely where we will go, which leads us to point number three. Point number three, the Holy Spirit gives us a new walk. The Holy Spirit gives us a new walk. You see, from verses 9 through 13, Paul moves to how we live and our relation to sin. Paul continues to juxtapose life in the Spirit and the flesh, but it is here that he uh, addresses our relation to sin, okay, as redeemed people. Paul is under no delusion, okay? that the Christian still lives in a world full of sin and that sin has sin still in them that continues to try to pull them back to the life of the flesh. He's under no delusion that that's the, the state of the Christian. Michael Bird explains it this way. He says that it's not that our heart is in a perpetual state of civil war with itself. Instead, it's more like our heart is a fortress that is constantly besieged by a wicked tyrant who once resided there and was defeated and exiled, yet desperately wants to get back in by launching a mixture of frontal and covert assaults. He says the sultan of sin, as he calls him, leading the armies of the world and the devil, wants to force his way into a territory that was never rightfully his and never will be again. Well, he might, he might seize the odd outpost, shake the walls artillery, wound the morale of the men guarding the tower, even smuggle the odd enemy soldier over its walls, Yet his power to annex our heart is hampered by the fact that the Spirit of Christ is there. And he has never surrendered any city to the tyrant. The Holy Spirit, says Paul, enables us to kill sin in our lives. It no longer has any sway over us. No longer is our master. We are 
freedmen and freed women and the Spirit of God indwelling us aids us to kill sin in our hearts and our lives. Do you believe that? Do you? Thomas Schreiner in his commentary said, Believers conquer sinful passions by relying on and trusting in the Spirit to provide the strength to resist the passions that wage war within us. With the indwelling Spirit, there is, with, without the indwelling Spirit, there is exactly zero hope to kill sin in our lives. No amount of grit and determination, no amount of human willpower, No amount of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps can kill the sin that remains in us. So when we talk about salvation by Christ, we aren't just talking just about verse 1. That we, we aren't just talking about salvation from penalty of sin at the end of the age. That's what we like to focus on, right? Isn't that most of our gospel presentations are like, where are you gonna go when you die? Right? Get your get out of hell free card. But what about right now? The the salvation that Jesus provides takes away both the penalty of sin and its power. Don't you see? Christ conquers both. Salvation in Christ was never meant to be only fire insurance from an eternal hell. The goal is not escape. Christ means to make you new right now. Christ means to make you a new creation who grows more and more like him through the power of the Spirit. When Paul says we ought to walk in the Spirit, he means a way of life, a pattern of life, a disposition towards obedience and good deeds, which we now can do because we have Christ and the indwelling Spirit. We can now genuinely grow in Christ and his likeness. But hear me now, friends. You will not grow unless you are actively killing sin in your life. You will not. I don't care the amount of Bible studies you attend. I don't care what your religious record is. You will not grow if you are not killing sin. One of the most important works of the Spirit in you is to grow you into the likeness of Christ more and more, and that cannot happen unless you kill the sin by His power. The problem is, Too many Christians do not lean on the Spirit and do no work to kill sin. Too many Christians, you know what they do? They flirt with sin, toy with it. They treat it like something that is okay to tolerate and cuddle and keep warm. They treat the grace of God as license to continue to sin rather than treating the grace of God as the means and motivation of killing sin. What does Paul say in verse 13? He says that those who live, live equals way of life according to the flesh, what's going to happen? They will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sin is death. Sin is death. Sin is not harmless. It is deadly. Do you guys realize that? It is... It killed Christ. (laughs) It is death, friend. Can I ask you, do you make a habit of killing sin or do you flirt with it? Do you excuse it and tolerate it? Or do you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it and pursue it and kill it? Some of y'all are petting your sin when you should be killing it. Some of you are underestimating what sin is doing to you and your soul and your relationship 
and your relationship with God. You know, a few years ago, there was a story out of Pennsylvania that you might have saw. There was a woman, she owned a black bear for nine years, and she named it Teddy. That's clever, right? One day when she went to clean Teddy's cage, you know where this is going, like she had done a thousand times, he mauled her and he killed her. Nine years, no incidents. A thousand visits to this cage, no problem. But on trip 1001, Teddy did what black bears do, and that's attack people. And no one should be surprised when a wild animal that isn't meant to be a pet turns and attacks its owners, right? Like, black bears are vicious wild animals. It doesn't matter that they look cuddly. It doesn't matter that their fur looks soft. It doesn't matter if you name it Teddy. Eventually, it will turn on you and kill you. Everyone who gets an exotic and deadly animal as a pet thinks they will somehow, right, be that exception. They will be the one person that the animal won't eventually turn on, but that's foolish. Why even risk? Some of y'all treat sin like Teddy. (laughs) Coddle it. Invite it in think because nothing has happened in all those times of committing the sin that nothing ever will. Know it, you know it's sin. You know it's not what God has for you. You know it could be deadly, but you excuse it and defend in your heart and are convinced it's okay for you. But friend, eventually sin will kill. Name it a cute name. Think it's Innocent and harmless all you want. Eventually, pain will result. There are only two ways to relate to sin. Do you know this? John Owen, Puritan, put it very well. He said, either be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no third way. There's no middle way. Kill sin or it will kill you. And hey, look, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. And I don't care how mature you think you are how much Bible or theology you know, or how much you've accomplished in your life or ministry. Sin is crouching at your door. And you must always be about killing it. No one graduates from sin killing. No one grows so much that they don't need to be about this work. In fact, you know what Satan would love? You know what he'd love? He'd love for you to think you're crushing it so much that you don't need to be about it. That way you'll be right for the picking. But don't you see, because of Christ and the indwelling spirit, we could tell the flesh, I don't owe you anything. Bird says, you don't owe the flesh even the slightest courtesy, but you are obligated to give the spirit your utmost devotion. Don't haggle or negotiate with the flesh. Instead, put false fleshly debt collector to death like you would a cobra you found in a child's bedroom. Friend, listen. Are you listening? You have been liberated from the power of sin. It has no power over you. So why act like it does? If you have the indwelling spirit, you have everything you need, right? Yes? You have everything you need to kill it, so why hang on to it? I'm talking about a person who, you know why I'm so frustrated? Because I see it in me. (laughs) One of the primary reasons I have seen For Christians, not killing sin is because they're seeking to justify themselves. 
We don't confess sin, we don't admit our mistakes, we play lawyer in our hearts and before people because we are banking on our own goodness and standing before others. In a word, our egos keep us from sin killing because to kill sin means to acknowledge it's there. To acknowledge that it is a problem, to see it for what it is rather than excusing why it's cool for us to do it. But now here's the question, okay? If you are in Christ... If you are justified by his deeds, not yours. Do you believe that? Do you? That was like worse. Do you believe that you are justified by Jesus' deeds, not yours? Do you believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you believe you have a new mind in the Spirit? So, what on earth are you defending? Like you guys see how silly it is? The verdict has been rendered. God has declared you not guilty because of Jesus. What on earth are you afraid of? Like, are we afraid what people will think of us, but we aren't afraid of what God thinks of us? Or who he's declared us to be? Let me give this straight, okay? The worst thing that can happen to you is that fellow sinners will see that you're a sinner too. That's the worst thing that could happen to you if you admit that you're jacked up and admit your sin. The worst thing that happened is messed up people will realize you're a mess. Like, doesn't allowing self-justification and the opinions of what men will think of us fundamentally miss the gospel? What Paul's not after here, understand, it's not some sort of sinless perfection, okay? That won't happen this side of eternity. But Paul does not expect Christians in this world to be free from sin or to reach a point when they don't blow it sometimes. What Paul does expect is people who have given their lives to Jesus, people who have been indwelled by the very Spirit of God to strive to do the will of God by the power of the Spirit of God, which means fighting sin and pursuing obedience. <clears throat> by the Spirit's power, we could uproot sin and we could replace it with Christ and His beauty. Will this take time? Absolutely. Will it be easy? Not a little. Will it be frustrating? Of course. Will we fail sometimes? Yes. But the Holy Spirit comes and makes a home with us, and he promises his power and his presence, and he assures us that we are children of God that can never and will never, that won't ever be rescinded. Do you realize that? Your status as a child of God, no matter what. And shouldn't that motivate us all the more to be who Christ says we are? Friend, fix your eyes on the truths of the gospel and the things of the Spirit and put your eyes on the glory of Christ because in light of his splendor, all the things of earth that tempt us and make us stumble are ugly and deformed by comparison. We must be people who are filled with the truths of the Spirit-inspired Scripture because it is the primary means by which we see Christ and his promises and his beauty and his assurance. You know, the old adage is still true. Sin will keep you from God's word, or God's word will keep you from sin. The Spirit, as we saw last week, he comes and he convicts, and he convicts our whole lives. And why? To show us our sin. To show us that we don't need it. To show us how it grieves God. To show us that Christ purchased us by absorbing the wrath of our sin, to bring us to repentance, to uproot sin, and then replace it with Jesus. This is where happiness and joy are found. Friend, are you struggling with a particular sin right now? Are you struggling with a particular sin right now, I wonder? 
I bet you are. Let me ask you this. What came into your mind when I asked that question? That's what you're struggling with. What are you covering over? What are you being convicted of but can't bring yourself to admit? What is that you know is wrong but you keep going back to it anyway? Is there something you're holding on to very tightly that you are unwilling to confess and repent of? Whatever it is, don't you see you don't need it? Don't you see that you don't have to live according to the flesh anymore? Don't you see you are free from sin's grip? Don't act as though there's no power available to you or you are helpless. I mean, you are helpless, but only if you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, there's no sin on earth you can't overcome by His power. Sometimes we act so helpless like we can't overcome the sin. Like, did you see that Paul says, this Holy Spirit that indwells you resurrected Jesus from the dead and he can't get over your sin? Is that what you're saying? You're free. (laughs) You're no longer bound. Stop acting like you're in bondage. Jesus has something better. You know what it is? Himself. If you lose that sin that you think you need, what you're really losing, what are you really losing when you have Jesus? Rather, sin will keep you from having more of him, but if you kill sin, you will get more of Jesus, and he's all you need and more. What is that sin you're struggling with? Humble yourself. Now get over yourself, all right? (laughs) Admit it to a brother or sister. Confess it to a true friend. Fire the lawyer in your heart that's defending it. Go to the Spirit and ask Him to help you kill it and put your eyes back on Christ and get in His Word and memorize it, hide in your heart, and pursue Christ's likeness as a way of living. Finally, point number four. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance and new hope. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance and new hope. See, not only have we received the Spirit of life and freedom so that we don't need the chains of sin, but we have received adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know that language? It's intimate, isn't it? Abba. It's familiar. Familial. It's great intimacy and trust. It's personal. God is a loving Father whom you can run to and find safety in His arms. And the Spirit gives us that assurance and that ability. So if we hear, look, if you heard me jumping up and down and screaming and yelling here, all this talk of sin killing and obedience, and we think anything other than God as a loving Father, we're missing it. Because they go right together. It is precisely because God is our Father that motivates us to obey and kill sin because we know He has what's best for us in mind. And we trust that He knows best and He wants what's best for us. The best fathers are the ones who, when you knew you blew it, when you knew you messed up big time, when you knew you needed help, you still called them, right? Those are the best fathers. You still admitted what you did. You didn't need to cover over it because you knew you'd find safety in them. And God, his father, blows the best fathers on earth out of the water. His love, unfathomable. His patience, inexhaustible. This is why the prodigal son is such a brilliant parable, right? Like the the younger son basically told his dad, you're dead to me, and I want your stuff, but not you. He just wanted his inheritance. Then he went and he spent it all, 
ended up in a pig pen, right? <coughs> he had to hit the bottom to come to his senses and the depths of his sin. So he goes to his father, and what does the father do? He's watching for him, isn't he? And you understand that, that older Middle Eastern men in this context did not run. That's just, you didn't do that. But what's he do? He didn't give a rip. Takes off down towards him, right? And he humiliates himself, and he runs down the road, throws his arms around his neck. And he brings him back to his table, and he throws a big party. The son went from wanting his dad's stuff to realizing that the best thing he could have was his dad. Let's not forget. The elder son is the one who could not admit he was wrong. And he found no safety in the father's touch. You see what verse 17 says? Believers, I want you to be thunderstruck by this, okay? Look at verse 17 again. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are inheritors of all things as adopted children. But you know the best part of this? It's not that we get the world, which we will. (laughs) It's not that we get all Christ stuff, which we will. The most astounding thing is that we are heirs of God. Do you guys see that? We get God. That's what that's saying. We inherit God. (laughs) We get God. We inherit God himself. I mean, can you believe this? So when we sin, we could go to him, and 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 he will always, 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 always throw his arms around our necks. He'll never cast us off. We will never sin so bad that he won't forgive. He will never be repelled by us. We will never be too dirty to be cleaned up by him. Now you tell me. You tell me if all that is motivation enough to kill the sin that hurts you and clouds your vision and intimacy with him. You still want that sin? You tell me if in light of God as Abba Father, we really need the approval of the world. (laughs) Or we really need to cover over our sin to try to justify ourselves. We have God as Father and Christ as brother and the Holy Spirit as friend and advocate and we inherit them all when we give our lives to Jesus. Like, what else do you need? What else should you live for and suffer for and die for truly? But hey, if you can believe it, it gets better. Verse 26 and 27 tells us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us. When we don't know what to pray, he searches our hearts and he intercedes according to the will of God. What's Paul saying there? He's saying we are weak. Do you agree you're weak? And that's okay. For the world, that's not okay, right? This is okay because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't need to be strong. Spirit strong for us. He's saying that we don't know what to pray since we don't fully comprehend God's will, so he fills the gaps. And he articulates God's will in his intercession for us. He's saying that the Spirit compensates for our deficiency. And those who have the mind of the Spirit have longings so deep that they are inexpressible and they become inaudible groans and our inexpressible longings that arise in our hearts to do and know God's will are made up for and translated by the Holy Spirit. No wonder 28 through 30 says all things work out for good. (laughs) 
The Spirit is effectively praying for us at all times so that the will of God will be accomplished in our lives. N.T. Wright puts it wonderfully. He said, this hints at something deeper than merely prayer in the way God wants or approves. God's own life, love, and energy are involved in the process. The Christian, precisely at the point of weakness and uncertainty and inability and struggle, becomes a place at which the triune God is revealed in person. Friend, I wonder, what has you groaning right now? You know, as humans, we groan, and we groan frequently, yes? What's causing that in you? You're groaning over something. Are you groaning over just the state of the world or political unrest, economic stress in your life? Is your work worrying you? Do you have relational problems? Are there emotional strains or physical ailments, family members who are hurting? Are you frightened or anxious or uncertain? What has you groaning right now? I know life can seem like a series of soul-crushing and heart-rending blows, one after the other. Can it seem like that sometimes? Wesley in The Princess Bride put it quite well when he said, life is pain, highness, anyone who says differently is selling something. As Christians, we're not immune to pains. In fact, we are promised in verse 17 that we will suffer. And this is part of the process of our glorification. We're promised by Jesus that we'll have troubles in this world, and we know this. And it's in this space that the Spirit speaks to us hope. Real hope. Lasting hope. Hope in the here and now and hope in the ear thereafter. The world tells us all is hopeless. Eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. People will fail you. Politicians are corrupt. The earth is getting strangely warmer. The country will destroy itself. Enemies have crazy weapons to wipe out all the earth. So we throw your hands up in the air and get as much as you can while you can. Like the entrance to hell in Dante's Inferno, the world flashes a sign that says, Abandon all hope, all you who enter. Bird says once more, in contrast, one could say the gates of heaven is a sign that says, lay down your hopes, all who grieve, for what your hearts long for you now receive. Here's hope. The world wants you to be a hedonistic, navel-gazing doomsdayer. But the gospel speaks a better word. Hope is real, and it's embodied in a person named Jesus who came to bring you hope, and that hope is himself. And he gives you God the Holy Spirit, and he testifies to your weary heart that there is hope. There is hope to kill sin. There is hope where there was once condemnation. There is hope in your weakness. There is hope in your groaning. There is hope now and forever. Whatever you're facing right now, sin, pain, loss, relational strain, the need to self-justify, Whatever makes you groan right now, would you go to the Spirit? He wants to remind you of who Christ is. He wants to show you his beauty. He wants to help you cry, Abba, Father. He, he, he wants to remind you that all things work together for God's purposes for those who love him. He wants to remind you that the triune God is your inheritance and he's all you ever need, and you get him right now and forever. Pray to the Spirit. Lean on the Spirit. Desire the Spirit. Ask for his help. Ask for his strength, and he will be faithful to answer our promise to assure and to guide and to advocate and to comfort.